Hello and welcome. I'm Megan Crabtree, and one of my favorite times of the day is when I'm getting ready and can throw on a true crime case without distraction. Every week, we dive into a new case while you grab your makeup, sip your coffee, and get ready with murder. Intuition. Do you listen to that gut feeling? You know what I'm talking about. When you are in a situation that just feels off, you can't describe it entirely, but you know that something isn't right to the point that you can feel it like inside of your body. Do you listen to that gut feeling or do you ignore it and go about your day? Well, Craig Harpster would have this feeling on the night of April 26, 2013. Craig was a regular at an Exxon gas station in North Shores, Michigan. If you are a regular that frequents a stop like this often, you know the setup, right? It's all too common and similar every single time that you stop. In fact, Craig knew the gas station attendant by name, Jessica Hiringa, because due to his schedule, he would end up stopping in usually only during her shift. During his typical routine stop, on that night in April, he would notice something off. It was 11.07 p.m. and Craig needed to fill up his gas tank, so he stops and begins the process. Now, when Craig arrived, he was just going to pay at the pump and go on his way, but he realized that the pump was actually shut off. And this wasn't that alarming to him, though. Craig knew that it was closing time, and he assumed that the pumps were just shut off. So Craig goes inside the station, just ready to pay with cash and get the pump back on so that he could fill up and head home. When he entered the Exxon gas station, though, he expected to see Jessica's friendly face waiting to greet him, but instead he was just met with silence. He peeked around the store looking for her and he even checked the walk-in freezer, but there was no sign of Jessica. Craig starts to get that eerie feeling, but before he could really determine what the situation was that was unfolding before him, he saw something that immediately told his intuition that he was right and something was really wrong. When Craig peeked behind the front desk, he noticed Jessica's purse was sitting there unattended, and the register, well, it was slightly ajar. Immediately, Craig knew something here is terribly wrong, and he questions himself a couple more times, but he ultimately decides, I need to call 911. This is the case of the disappearance of Jessica Hearinga. Jessica Hearinga was a 25-year-old mother to a sweet little three-year-old boy named Zevin. She was engaged to her son's father, Dakota, and during the time of her disappearance, Jessica was the sole income provider for their small family. While Jessica would go to work, her fiance would watch over their son at home. Now, Jessica had big life goals to eventually go to school for accounting and be able to continue to build a better life for her little family. She worked at the Exxon gas station in her town and she actually just really loved what she did. She enjoyed working her closing shifts. She had her regular customers and they meant a lot to her. Like some of her customers actually refused to go to the store unless Jessica was working because they loved her that much. On the night of April 26th, Jessica went in for her normal shift at the Exxon station. The store closed nightly at 11.30 p.m. and Jessica would start her nightly closing shifts at about an hour or so before the doors would shut. At 10.55 p.m. that night, Jessica would record her last transaction for a customer that just purchased a lighter and left. Now, Craig would end up calling 911 at 11.07, just 12 minutes after this last transaction occurred when he wouldn't be able to locate Jessica anywhere in the 
door and called the police. So the timeline here for whatever did happen to Jessica is incredibly short. We're talking mere minutes that whoever did something to her took place right before Craig arrived on the scene. When authorities arrived to the station, they knew right away that something was seriously wrong here. They immediately find Jessica's jacket in the back room. They make note that Jessica's car was still located in the parking lot, so it's not like she just left. Now, remember how Craig noted that the cash register was slightly ajar? Police would determine that all of the cash was accounted for in the register. And beyond that, Jessica's purse had $400 in cash inside of it. So immediately, everybody realizes that robbery was absolutely not the motive here and that they needed to call backup and treat this like an abduction and a crime scene. Now, as they're investigating, one of the first people they bring in is the store manager, Sue Fallett, who tells them that her and her husband had actually been riding their motorcycles that evening right around 11 p.m. And as they were riding by the gas station, they actually noticed that there was this silver van that was driving behind the store, like where they would get delivery trucks that area in the back where they would typically go. They thought that was super odd because it was so late in the evening and knowing that there was zero reason they should be receiving any kind of delivery that late. So they actually pulled into the parking lot near the van and they noticed a man that walked to the back of the van, shut the door, opened it back up immediately, and then really, really quickly shut it again. He drove off after this, but they were able to get a really good description of the man and his van. The van was a Chrysler town and country, and they described the man as having this like wild blonde hair. Uh, he was a white male, six foot tall, probably around 30 to 40 years old, and Sue, the manager, she didn't recognize him as a regular customer or anything like that. They took all of this information to a sketch artist later that day and got a sketch drawn up immediately. So in this same area where the van had been, authorities realized that there was a small stain in the concrete that looked a lot like blood. Combined with the suspicious activity of this random guy in his van, they would actually take the stain and send it off for testing. Of course, it's going to take a little bit of time for that to come back. So while they're waiting on that testing, they continue to investigate. Now, immediately, authorities reach out to Jessica's fiance, Dakota. If you listen to any amount of true crime, you know that always, always the husband or the spouse is immediately looked into. So police would questioned Dakota's whereabouts that evening, and he would explain to them that he was home the entire night with their son as he was a stay-at-home dad. He really didn't have anyone that could confirm his alibi, but he did have the fact that their family only had one car on his side as it was parked right there in the gas station parking lot where Jessica had left it that night. Eventually, police do confirm through phone records that Dakota was where he said that he was, and he was officially ruled out as a suspect at that time. So going back to the manager, Sue, well, she was able to help get that sketch completed and it was released to the public about three days after Jessica's disappearance. Now the sketch is honestly pretty generic. I don't know how anyone honestly is caught by a sketch truly because they all look just about the same to me. It would though generate thousands of leads, but unfortunately none of them actually led to a suspect. 
Now, I'm sure that I know what you're thinking, and it's, why don't they just review security footage? Well, there wasn't any. Unfortunately, there wasn't any cameras set up at this Exxon station, and this is just my unasked for advice for you, but please, if you are working alone, late at night, anywhere, at the very least, please confirm that that company has security cameras set up at your location for your own benefit. Should anything happen to you, at least people can look at the cameras. So investigators were losing hope as the days continued on with just like very little leads until May 8th when they would receive the confirmation that the stain behind the store where the van had been parked, well, it was blood. And it was not only blood, but it was confirmed to be Jessica's DNA. This was the confirmation that they needed to be 100% certain that Jessica was a target here. The leads continue to slow down and Jessica's case goes cold until about seven months after Jessica went missing. While discussing Jessica's case, it would be brought up to investigators by Jessica's mom, Shelly, that she just thought it was so bizarre that they found nothing at all in Jessica's journal that would help them in in this case because Jessica's journal was her lifeline. She took every single night to spend a few minutes alone writing in that journal. Jessica wrote down all of her thoughts and feelings in this journal every single day. Well, the detective just like blankly stares at Shelly and responds that he has no idea what she is referring to and they never had Jessica's journal turned in. So this is where it gets a little weird. Apparently, when Jessica went missing, Shelly made sure to reach out to her fiance, Dakota, and tell him that he needed to find Jessica's journal in their house and relay it to the police because surely it had something in it that could help the detectives. Well, come to find out, seven months later... Dakota never gave the journal to police. Apparently, Dakota had actually been hiding a lot from investigators. When investigators sit down with Dakota and get this journal in their hands and start reading it, some very disturbing information starts to come to light. Jessica wrote almost daily about how unhappy she was with Dakota and how controlling he was in their relationship. She felt trapped. She was worried about her future and she knew that her relationship with Dakota had just really gotten so unhealthy and wasn't safe anymore. They learned through this journal that while it looked like Jessica and Dakota were sharing a cell phone and a vehicle just for money-saving purposes, it turned out that it was actually one of Dakota's controlling tactics that he could track her every move and know exactly who and when she was communicating with anyone. Now, with all of that being said, they did already confirmed that he was at home during the time of Jessica's disappearance through cell phone records. But now, knowing what they know, they do officially end up naming Dakota as a person of interest, even though his alibi would continue to hold. After the shocking discovery about Dakota, months would continue to pass with absolutely no breaks in the case until... February of 2014. Around 80 miles south of where Jessica went missing, the lead detective on Jessica's case, Detective Mike, well, he would get a phone call from a fellow investigator that lets him know like, hey, really odd here. We have a case that is so similar to the one that you're working on. There's a woman in her early 20s that was dragged into a vehicle, sexually assaulted, but she was able to escape her abductor. The man that did this, his name was Brad Allen Mason. 
Now, this man was interesting to Jessica's case for many reasons. He had a lengthy criminal past serving time in prison for abduction and rape, and he had actually lived in a halfway house just down the road from the Exxon gas station that Jessica was working at. He also bared a resemblance to the sketch that was drawn up by Sue's recollection. Now, this is where it just gets crazy, is that when the police went to go and arrest this guy for the abduction and sexual assault of the woman that had escaped, well, Brad Allen Mason would display a fake gun to the police. Obviously, the police shot him because they had no idea it wasn't real. And this was after kind of like a standout, you know, and he just was absolutely refusing to drop the weapon. Officers would actually later consider this as officer assisted suicide. Apparently the fake gun, well, he had manipulated it to look real and he was hoping that they would shoot him. So when Detective Mike's hopes are up about possibly having a lead in Jessica's case, they're quick destroyed because this guy is dead and he isn't able to provide them with any answers. Eventually, after several more years, they were able to confirm that he was not connected to Jessica's case. Jessica's case remains cold after this. Now, with Jessica being gone, Dakota actually gets arrested in 2014 for drugs. And Jessica's sister, Samantha, well, she ends up filing for custody of their son, Zevin, which this just turns into like a horrible custody battle, but the good news is is that Samantha does eventually win custody of her nephew. Things continue quiet in Jessica's case until 2016. On Saturday, April 16th, 2016, a 16-year-old girl was abducted in a 2013 Silvertown and Country Chrysler minivan. This girl is terrified, but she's a fighter and she manages to escape the van and run down the road where she ends up in a random person's house and calls the police. Thank God she is able to describe this vehicle and this guy that abducted her. Now later, she was actually able to pick this guy out in a lineup. This is the first time the police have a name, Jeffrey Willis. Jeffrey Willis was a 46-year-old married man who works an overnight shift at a local factory. He didn't have a record, but he did interestingly drive a van that matched the exact description of the van at the Exxon station that night that Jessica went missing. Now, police would obtain a search warrant for Jeffrey's home and vehicle, and what they find there is really disturbing. They find rope, handcuffs, wrist restraints, ball gags, chains, Viagra, video cameras. Guys, the list goes on. He has so many disturbing things in his hands, and on Jeffrey's computer, they find even more. He had many pictures of women gagged and bound and even murdered. And what was the final bingo for investigators was when they found photos of Jessica from the day that she went missing. Now, they quickly realized that not only is Jeffrey connected to Jessica's disappearance, but during their investigation, they discover that he is actually connected to multiple disappearances in the area. One of those disappearances was of a young woman named Rebecca Bletch. Rebecca had been out jogging when she was shot and killed, and investigators were able to match shell casings found at the scene to a gun in Jeffrey's possession. Long story short, they opened a can of worms when they were able to get the search warrant for his home. While Jessica's case is waiting for the next steps, Jeffrey was able to be charged with murder for Rebecca Bletch. Jessica's family waits anxiously to hear what police find and 
what will help with Jessica's case. Investigators found a folder on Jeffrey's hard drive labeled VIX, in which investigators believe is short for victims. And then within that folder, they find another folder that is labeled JLH, which would stand for Jessica Lynn Hearinga. Inside of this folder, investigators would find those photos of Jessica that I mentioned briefly before, as well as more child pornography. There was basically a code at the end of this file labeled DZ13, and investigators were later able to determine that this stood for April 26th. 2013, the day that Jessica went missing. There's also another folder and it was labeled RSB for Rebecca Bletch with all kinds of information about her death down to a picture of a woman laying in her bed dressed in a bikini that really resembles Rebecca. There's another code at the end of this file. It was FZ plus C14, which coincidentally is coded for the date June 29th, 2014, the day that Rebecca died. Now, later on, witnesses would come forward and confirm that they spotted Jeffrey at the gas station flirting with Jessica on the day that she disappeared. Something super eerie is that one of Jessica's customers, Brenda, remember how I said she had, you know, favorite customers and they all looked out for her. Well, one day Brenda was actually in the gas station just chatting with Jessica and they were talking about how Brenda was worried about, you know, Jessica being a girl alone in this gas station at night and that she really needed to be careful. And Jeffrey was actually there and interrupted their conversation to basically say, well, her customers look out for her too. Brendan noticed immediately as he said this, like Jessica was creeped out by Jeffrey to the point that Brenda decided to hang around the gas station until Jeffrey left for that night because this was just off-putting to her. And guys, this was the night before Jessica went missing. Now here's the trickiest part of Jessica's case. We don't have a body. If you listen to true crime, you know how incredibly difficult it is to prove that someone murdered a person without a body. So even though they have really good evidence against Jeffrey, the DA is hesitant to move forward with the trial because if they lose, that's it. The defense can honestly argue to any point that there is no body, therefore no proof that a murder was committed. Double jeopardy could happen and guys, this guy's just off the hook. Now, something interesting would come to light about the whereabouts of Jessica. Jeffrey's cousin, his name was Kevin Bloom. Well, he would come into the picture. Apparently, he claims that he had been invited to go out and party with Jeffrey on the night of April 26th, 2013. And when he arrives, he actually found Jeffrey standing over this woman that was laying on the ground, motionless, and he presumed dead. Kevin claims that Jeffrey referred to this woman as gas station girl. And he told Kevin that he had sexually assaulted her. Kevin also describes to investigators that there was a video camera down there as well. And it seemed as if Jeffrey was now creating his own snuff films. So Kevin tells investigators that he actually ends up helping Jeffrey bury Jessica's body. And then later on, he would go on to recant that and say, no, I just made it all up. Now, Kevin did lead them to a burial spot before he recanted his statement, and there wasn't any body there at all. They also brought in cadaver dogs to the area that didn't hit on anything. So Kevin does end up being charged for lying to police and being an accessory after the fact, but he's out now. Despite not having a body in Jessica's case, 
Jeffrey Willis would be found guilty of murdering both Jessica Herringa and Rebecca Bletch. He was sentenced to life without parole in both of these cases. Jessica's body still has not been found to this day, which is so frustrating for the family because there isn't that ability to lay their daughter to rest and try and find some peace in this absolutely horrific situation. Jessica's family would work with police to create what's called Jessica's Law. This law requires that gas stations that are opened from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., they're required to install surveillance cameras. And in March of 2020, the bill was passed. Now, I personally believe that Kevin Bloom, the cousin, I think he had a lot more to do with the crime that he ever let on, and I hate that this guy is now out on the streets. It's clear that Jeffrey had a very unhealthy obsession with violent acts, snuff films, and child pornography that grew to this disgusting state that he ended up acting out multiple times. Thank God for the girl that was abducted and managed to escape and point out Jeffrey, because who knows how long it would have taken him to slip up and get caught. Well, guys, that's the case for today. I hope you enjoyed getting ready with me and I hope that you have the best day ever. Stay aware and stay safe out there. Bye. 